0: Buongiorno amici. Welcome to Kimberly's Italy. I'm Tommaso. Yes, you're stuck with me again because her dogeness is on a flight back from Rome at this moment after 10 days in Italy. And I use the word I made up, dogeness, because in Venice, the doge, the Republic of Venice, the doge was in charge, the big kahuna. Well, her dogeness is not here right now. So this episode is about Venice. Going in the off-season, the artists of Venice, the atmosphere you can experience, and more importantly, how you can really feel what they felt centuries ago by going in the off-season. So here we go. And as for the opening music, which is different than our normal music, it's a section of Vivaldi's Four Seasons Violin Concertos. It's called Autumn. And if we're talking about Venetian history and experiencing Venice without the pile of day-trippers, Well, Vivaldi should be in the background. I mean, he was born in Venice. So obviously, we're going to combine this episode with a nudge for you to go to Venice in the off-season, but throw in some art history relating to Venice to help you understand why this trip could be really, really special. So let's start out with a bit of art history first to tie a couple things together. I've been collecting art books for some time and by far the greatest area of concentration in the books I have is Venice. They include both native Venetian artists like Giovanni Antonio Canal, or Canaletto, and Francesco Lozado Guardi, or Guardi, or the great fresco painter. Of more important interest to me were the drawings of Giovanni Battista Tipolo. And there was a whole great raft of great British painters who were inspired by Venice. Turner, Prout, Wilde, Callow, and my favorite, Richard Parks Bonington whose watercolors are just fantastic. And sadly, he died at age 26. Man, what he could have produced down the road if he had lived a full life. These painters made a handsome living, adoring the walls with vistas of Venice sold to the English aristocracy. Next on the list are some artists like American painters John Singer Sargent, James McNeil Whistler, and Maurice Prendergast, who were inspired by Venice's magic light And varied architectural styles. In summation, it is difficult to experience Venice today. What these painters saw with the tourist numbers that descend on Venice during high season, it's almost 15 to 20,000 people a day. But the views that these painters saw, the sounds of footsteps in the back streets, the quiet, yes, it can be quiet at night, and even sometimes in the day in the off season, And for those of you who have not listened to our previous episodes, I think it was number 18 on Venice, Kimberly and I danced alone in Piazza San Marco one night. There was this classical group playing, maybe a septet. We walked by and there was no one around. So we just started dancing. I think the Italians liked it and they kept playing. It was one magical evening and we had Venice to ourselves. And I have to confess that I'm a night walker. I don't sleep well in the best of times, and jump time zones, and I'm sleepless in wherever. I've walked Venice, Amsterdam, Copenhagen, London, Zurich, Zermatt, Paris, Como, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, into the wee hours. And I started this back in college at Boston University, where I would walk back Bay and Beacon Hill late into the night. And Kimberly and I would walk the point section of Newport, which is a very historical section, where we bought our first house. Gaslit lanterns lit the streets, and you could almost feel the 1700s and 1800s in Newport at that time. So you get the essence of history and what it might have been like to live centuries ago if you walk at night. It's not for everyone, but it is for her dogeness and I. I've put up a web page for you to look at with an example of the works of these painters, if you'd like to take a peek. There's a link in the show notes. So let's start out and define what it meant to be in Venice when some of these painters were there at the beginning of the 19th century. And for a lot of these painters, the post-Napoleonic war period was a time to rediscover Venice. The Republic of Venice was dissolved, and Venice was now part of Italy. And Venice at this time was not what it is today. I mean, it was a bit run down and not in the least bit crowded. And many people complained about the dirt and decay. And there was an English historian named Edward Gibbon. And he wrote, of all the towns in Italy, I am least satisfied with Venice, old, and in general, ill-built houses, ruined pictures, and stinking ditches dignified with the pompous denominations of canals. A fine bridge spoiled by two rows of houses upon it, and a large square with the worst architecture I ever saw. So I guess Mr. Gibbons wasn't enamored with Venice as I am or Kimberly is or you are. Talk about <clears> herumph, <throat> <clears throat> yes. But for other travelers, different things irritated different people in different ways, and the gnats were there because of these canals, provided the great source of irritation, and apparently were as difficult to avoid as the prostitutes. He went on, the courtesans are the most insinuating and have the most alluring arts in Italy. Now, I'm not quite sure where he was going with that because he talked about the most insinuating. I'm not quite sure what he was doing there, but he talked about the alluring arts. So maybe he did a little sampling of the, um, of the offering. Who knows? But for other artists and poets like Lord Byron, regarded as one of the leading English poets of the time, it was different he was immediately impressed by the melancholy of the decaying city. It has not disappointed me, though its evident decay would have that effect on others. But I have been familiar with ruins too long to dislike desolation. Desolation. I mean, when have you ever heard that word in a sentence relating to Venice? And Byron also said, it's one of those places which I know before I see them and has haunted me. I like the gloomy gaiety of their gondolas and the silence of their canal. I do not even dislike the evident decay of the city. So, obviously, Byron was a fan. And for Byron, Venice, Venice was an omen of the decaying city whose crumbling buildings and a fallen republic pointed a warning finger towards Britain's proud democracy and obvious prosperity. And if the mighty Venice Mistress of the sea could be brought so low, then Britain beware. And going back to all the artists who had been there, I mean, one of the great painters of all time, Turner, his vision of Venice influenced generations of artists. And it's difficult for any traveler not to see the city at times through his eyes. But yet his stays in Venice were really, really short. But it was so atmospheric and they stuck in his mind that he could produce these beautiful paintings when he went back to England. In all, Turner spent no more than four to five weeks there between a couple of trips over 21 years. And his extraordinary visual memory, because of what you see, how magical it is, this enabled him to recapture the sunlight, the mists, the storms, the fog, the gondolas, all of this around that beautiful lagoon as well as the character, if not the details of the buildings, in his paintings. And they were executed from minor sketches years later. So Turner's paintings influenced a lot of people and a lot of writers, including John Ruskin. And John Ruskin was both an art critic, an art writer, and a sort of amateur painter. And Ruskin wrote a seminal work, The Stones of Venice. And many artists, both major and minor, caught their first glimpse of Venice through Turner's canvases and watercolors. So Venice was obviously magical two to 300 years ago. And today it still holds its magic. But the idea is to experience this magic on your own terms, not in terms dictated by overtourism. So if you go in the off-season, what kind of weather? Will you have if you go, say, November through March, which is effectively the off season? Well, you can usually expect a mild winter, with lows in the 30s and 40s Fahrenheit. For those of you abroad, I'm sorry, I haven't translated that into centigrade. But occasional flooding, which is called the Aqua Alta, and basically, it's going to be pretty mild. But you know, it's not sunshine and tank tops. Thank God. But this weather won't affect your sightseeing plans. Tobacco shops and some other souvenir shops, they sell boots if there's an aqua altar, a little flooding, which will keep your feet dry. And during some of the periods, elevated walkways are set up through Piazza San Marco and various other areas around Venice to keep you above the water and not walking through it. I mean, it only gets up to be, you know, mid-calf height. I mean, it has gotten higher, but... It's kind of actually, it's kind of cool, but it also contributes to the decay of the city. So if you happen to go to Venice in the winter, the tourists depart and the Venetians come out. Their fur coats and their hats reclaim their piazzas, their churches, and their good tables at Harry's Bar. Fog rolls in over the islands, and you can pause to watch the gondoliers glide their narrow boats out of the mist. The city is at ease. And these lit back walkways are now the province of unhurried locals and their dogs. And they are a world apart from the roar of July. The off-season in Venice is the romantic season. And for the more civilized crowds and lower prices, making it an appealing time to visit. The flights arrive at Marco Polo Airport, from which you can take a water bus into town or opt for a small luxury of a water taxi which will drop you off as close to your hotel as the canals permit. Now, not all the hotels are open. The last time I read the Cipriani, which is pretty much the gold standard in Venice, was closed during the winter. But it is the best time and is the best chance for a quiet, required tour of St. Mark's Basilica. And that opens at 945 in the morning. And after that, you can walk across the Piazza San Marco to the Café Florian for a thick, creamy hot chocolate, the same place that summer visitors wait in long lines for seats, a place, of course, they want to experience it. It's been serving coffee since the 18th century, but in the off season, you can sail straight through to the marble tables by the windows. So let's move on now and I'll give you a little bit of an idea about the artist behind the the visuals, what I'm talking about. And if you want to go to that page that I've defined earlier, that's in the show notes, kimberleysitaly.com forward slash Venice dash artists, we'll talk about some of these paintings. And obviously this is not a catalog resume of all these paintings. This is just like the what I feel the greatest hits a la Tommaso because The body of work some of these people produce is just amazing. But I'll highlight what I think are some extraordinary pieces by some of them. The first group, which I talked about, Canaletto, Guardi, and Tipolo. Well, they were early. They were before the British really rediscovered it. And Canaletto and Guardi sold paintings, as I mentioned before, to the British aristocracy. And one of the highlights of what I've been able to buy over time, is a collection of reproductions, 50 drawings that are in the library at Windsor Castle. So the Queen of England at the time allowed them to be reproduced. And there were 500 sets reproduced, and I got number 81. And when I was working in New York City for an Italian.com, I would go across the street to Hackers, the bookstore, and look at this folio every day. It's a big one. a picture of it up on Instagram. It's a big, It's it takes up a lot of space. And when I finally bought it in the end, I was so proud to have acquired it. And they only had one and I was all very nervous that someone would buy it. And I kept going up, going over there, going over there, trying to make a decision. And I finally bought it. So a couple of the early drawings are in there of the Canaletto. He's artist number one. For a lot of English painters, their first experience with the vistas in Venice, was through these Italian painters, Canaletto and Guardi, who decorated the walls of the English aristocracy. And they would show them in London, and then they'd be put in their homes, never to be seen again, as a number are today. Number one and two are drawings by Canaletto, and number three and four are paintings by Canaletto. Moving on to the next person, Antonio Guardi. Now, Guardi, Canaletto was pretty tight in his drawing style. Guardi, on the other hand, was pretty loosey-goosey, and I really get a kick out of Guardi's style because they're like fast and furious. I mean, he was a a reasonably good draftsman, too. The perspectives are right. Everything looks right, but he just was loose, and he was loose in his paintings also. So Guardi, number five and six, are drawings, and you can see that they're looser than Canaletto's, and his paintings were a lot more painterly than Canaletto's. I mean, cantalettos were quite but they're more more illustrative than than a real emotion that Guadi tried to put in. He has a little bit looser style. You can imagine having a drink with both of them. And probably Guadi was like, Yeah, 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 just make it look okay. And Candiletto's like, no, 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 no. Those those stones are off. I really wish I could have had a drink with both of them in the Cafe Florian. That would have been if I could die and come back, I'd like to spin back in time and have a have a cocktail with those two and I mentioned before, Giovanni Domenico Tipolo. And there's a great book that was published by the Metropolitan Museum, which I have a copy of. And it's all 18th century drawings that are in their collection. And they have a lot of Tipolo. He, again, he was a fresco painter, which you can see on image number nine. Um, you know, religious, allegorical, in the sky, looking up to the heavens, all that stuff. Not all that interesting to me. What I really, really liked was his drawings of the Puccinellos, which were these these bizarre uh, uh, acrobats and, and circus-type people. And I think they're really, really funny. They're really well executed. When Tipolo died, he left 2,000 drawings scattered all over the Western Hemisphere. And some of those drawings are just magical. Okay, so now we're going to move into the British guys who came. And the British were really, again, filling that need for the British aristocracy and the salons and in in London to show at the Royal Academy and whatnot what had been accepted. I mean it was a big deal when you got a painting accepted or you could show at the Royal Academy. And I'm not a professional art historian. So if I've said something wrong and someone's out there going, uh, that's that's absolute BS, I'm sorry. These painters They really, really influenced me, and I'm sort of a, I'm an amateur watercolorist and started painting years ago. And when I look at these paintings, I feel Venice. This is where I really start to feel Venice, and that decaying Venice. That's where they found their inspiration, and I wanted to go over some of these with you. So. Everyone knows and it's recognized that Turner was a fantastic painter. And as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, he didn't spend a lot of time in Italy, like two or three weeks over the course of 21 years. But he produced a body of work, which a lot of people say he was a little liberal in moving a building here, building there, changing scale, all that stuff to make his paintings more saleable. But what he did capture was the atmosphere of the sunsets, was the atmosphere of Venice, that mist, that 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 what you feel in the off season when you're walking around late in the day. So images 12 to 14, they're turners. So think about that and think about how you might feel walking around in the afternoon in Venice in a Turner sunset. Hmm? Pretty nice, huh? So one of the first people I mentioned after Turner, matter of fact, the first one was Prout, Samuel Prout. And frankly, to me, yes, they are very nice. They look nice. But, you know, it just feels to me like it was cranked out wall decor. There's nothing that uh, really makes me feel something in these. Uh, I think Prout was uh, well-recognized as a painter, but, you know, I just put him out there because he was one of the people that continued to send paintings back and sell them in London. Believe me, he's much better than a lot of people would ever dream of being. But still, I don't think there's a lot of feeling in these. They're more illustrative. Moving on to images 17 and 18, William Wilde. Now, Wilde, to me, is a little bit more emotion. He's sort of between a Prout and a Turner um, he's got some sunsets. Again, you know, you got to paint what sells and sunsets obviously sell. And there's a reason why we all sit around and have a cocktail when we can at sunset because it's a beautiful time of the day. And that lagoon and sunset, well, it really, really set the tone. So 17 and 18 are William Wilde. I think Wilde was a great painter. And I think he brought some of that that mist, that emotion that Venice makes you feel when you're there by yourself. Next on the list, 1920 and 21, William Callow. Now here's where I start getting excited because of, I love watercolors. And Callow was one of those guys that was both illustrative, but really fluid. And could he, and could he bring that, he could bring that emotion out. And anyone who's tried watercolors now, it's, you know, there's a lot of hit and miss in watercolors. It's like, you gotta know the paper, you gotta know the temperature, you gotta know the humidity, how things are gonna dry, how the color is gonna mix. And you know, we didn't, they didn't have YouTube back then to figure it out, right? So to be a ta- talented watercolor painter back then was I think something pretty extraordinary. So Keller's watercolors to me are just wonderful. But this brings me to the last on our list for the British painters, Richard Parks Bonington. And I bought a book about Bonington because I really wanted to sit down and know what he painted and sort of walk through his process because he was such a short timer. I mean, the guy died at 26 years old. And as I said before, what would he have produced if he had hung around for a little bit longer? So numbers 22, 23, and 24 are by Watercolors by Bonington. And they really strike me as fluid. There's a lot of transparency involved. There's a lot of really understanding the medium and uh, he painted all over Europe uh, in Paris and whatnot and and on the coast of France, between the English Channel. But really, the Venetian stuff he did really, really, I don't know, for whatever reason, grabs my heart, may not grab yours, but it grabs mine. And let's start with the Americans here, and no one can conceivably realistically start talking about American. Painters who painted in Venice without first leading with John Singer Sargent. I mean, the guy was a rock star. His fluidity and his watercolors were just amazing. And the light he captured, the contrast, the light and dark with quick strokes, fast. It just just blows your mind when you try and actually do this on your own and think about how he did it. Again, no YouTube, but he pulled it off. So Sargent is images 25, 26, and 27 getting almost to the end of all these artists. But James McNeil Whistler did a lot of nocturnes, night. He was, he was a very, very special painter in that he liked to paint night scenes. And imagine what it was like trying to figure that out, right? With no real light at night to paint by. You had to sort of visualize it at night, close your eyes and remember it and how to paint it in the daytime. And he loved the lagoon at night. 28, 29, and 30 are James McNeil Whistler. And last but certainly not least, uh, which his work sort of illustrates how quickly Venice in a hundred years had become crowded again. And you look at a lot of Maurice Prendergast's work, and it's, you know, a lot of people walking around with parasols, uh, crowded, uh, no tank tops, a much more formal existence than we have today, but still nonetheless starting to get crowded. But his work was very loose. His watercolors are light and airy. And we're sort of sort of moving to that level of somewhat early abstraction, not being bound in by uh, painting outside the lines and letting letting the letting the medium work for you. So Prendergast's watercolors are also uh, very, very illustrative of the feeling one's getting, but in a much different way. He was focused on really the society and the gaiety of the time and the social existence that came about when all these people started to go to Venice again. Anyway, that's my short clip on art history. It is no it is by no means meant to be thorough and it isn't by no means meant to be a thesis on the painters of Venice. It's just how I feel. And I think that if you go to Venice with a little bit of this knowledge and maybe take that page and bookmark it. And when you're walking around Venice, I think at night, if you go in the off season at sunset in the lagoon, you'll feel the same thing that they felt. Maybe you'll hear one or two footsteps that mist will come in and then you can turn around and go to the Florian and have hot chocolate. Anyway, next week we'll have the, uh, the dogeness back. She's had a great trip with six women, and she's got a lot to talk about, I am sure. So anyway, thanks for listening to me on my own. Appreciate your time. Enjoy. Thanks. Ciao, ciao.